together. Um, if you didn't get one of these last week or this week in the back, uh, the table back there is this little uh, booklet, especially the book of Galatians. Text on one side, a place to take notes, uh, draw pictures, whatever you choose to do. Uh, it's helpful. I, I like this because if you leave, uh, you leave a certain series or you leave something and you have some thoughts, keep it. You can use it later on, and it's helpful. So they're on the back table. Uh, grab one of those if you don't have one. Um, you can grab that. Glad you're here. Uh, Pray here just a second. Remember that Dwayne and uh, Alex Fox, Mac and Norm are in um, Rwanda. Short trip there, just a long way for a short trip. Uh, delivering some medical supplies. We'll pray for them. Also, continue to re remember the Nap family. Michael, Susan, glad you're here. Uh, we love you so much. Um, and Michael and his family and his mom and sister grief. Uh, their dad's uh, passing. So let's keep praying. Jesus, thank you for um, the body that we we do. We meet with those who we and may we be attuned to those around us. That maybe we can, uh, many in here weep that we don't know it, and so maybe uh, maybe it's a place to tell another another uh, believer, another another struggle on this journey of faith of, of the weep, the weeping, and sadness that we experience. But we pray for the naps. We pray for comfort. We pray for peace. We thank you for Michael's dad and his faith. Know that he is well received uh, in Jesus. And what a great consolation! What a great thing to know. Again, we know that uh, on this earth the pain is, is real. So comfort them, be with them, be with Michael's mom and his sister. Be with those that are in Rwanda and as they travel, keep them safe through all the logistics and the customs and all the things they have to do. Uh, protect them, guide them, lead them as they navigate. Time there, bring them home safely. Be with families that remain here, keep them safe, uh, protect them. Continue to be with us as we think about what it means to be a church on mission. As we think about how do we, uh, what we do on Sunday impacts how we do life the rest of the week and our vocation and our family and uh, the race relations that we talked about uh, in Sunday school. As we think about uh, singleness, as we think about parenting, as we think about uh, our money, all the things. Pray that we would be a church that would have a sense of your call us in to send us out to bless and to, to give and to serve uh, those around us, and particularly here in Midtown. Help us to be that kind of church. Finally, Lord, help us as we come to your word. We, we just confess we need it. We, we, uh, we get tossed, we get uh, allured by the things of the world. Um, there's so much appeal, there's so much shine. So much that glitters, and uh, we want it. And so we pray that we help use this time to realign our hearts and reaffirm that which is true, and that which is holy, and that which is holy. Help us now, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, if you don't mind standing one final time, briefly, as we read our text, we finished uh, Ecclesiastes, and Ryan got started last week with Galatians. Uh, we're going to look at just a few verses, 6 through really 9, but we'll read 6 through 10. That this is God's word. Paul says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preached to you, let him be accursed. 
we have said before, so now I say it again. If anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For am I not now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. This is the word of the Lord. You haven't seen it. Astonished, Paul says. He starts with astonished. Philip Rankin speaks of Quintilian. He was a, a first century. He would have been a contemporary of Paul. They probably wouldn't have known each other. He was uh, Quintilian was from Spain, but he was a Latin uh, teacher and educator. He was well known uh, for his leading in the classical style of education and rhetoric and logic. Uh, you can read his famous Institutio Oratorio. He had strong opinions about rhetoric about uh, the use of language, he writes this about uh, speakers that he despised that had a loud or angry tone. He said this, I do not understand why certain writers should open in such a wild and exclamatory manner. When a man is asked to express his opinion on any subject, he does not, if he is sane, begin to shriek, but endeavors as far as possible to win the assent of the man who is considering the question by courteous and natural opening. This is first century. This is the courteous way you speak in doing rhetoric. Rhetoric, uh, courteous and natural opening. Apparently, Paul did not get the memo. Um, Paul starts a strongly, inappropriately, by Quintilian standards. I'm astonished, he says. He goes on to talk about being accursed. Wishing those around him. He says it not once, but twice. Why so strong? Why the language? N.T. Wright gives a, a hypothetical situation to try to capture the scene here uh, in the first century in Galatia. Galatia is a region. There are multiple churches going on. And he says, imagine uh, you were in uh, apartheid South Africa. It's the 1970s. Uh, you know, apartheid, black and white, segregation. Um, and this tension is strong. Um, and you come in with a risky proposition to build a community center. And you're going to build a community center uh, that's going to bring everyone together, black and white, uh, together in unity and harmony. And you have designs, and you have plans, and you lay a foundation to which this building can be built. And it's going to bring everyone together. And only this, this kind of building will work. It won't matter your race or your color, but everyone will get along, will fit in. So you begin the process and lay the foundation. But then you get a call, an urgent matter in another part of the country. And so you, you leave feeling like the, the project is in good hands. But as you're away, you get a letter. And Wright says, the letter tells you that uh, there are new builders that are building on your foundation. And they're working off the foundation, but they're, they're building with a new design. This time there's, there's two meeting spaces. And there's two front doors, one black. One why? That sound familiar to the American South? Um, and, and many people are relieved in the area. They thought this was a crazy proposition. That one community center, everyone's going to come together black and white. And so they're relieved for this new design because it, it solves the tension, the problem of trying to do the, the hard work of coming together. But others said it's not what the designer had in mind. They had to design this building where they would come together, would all be one. And so they they ask the, the new builders, what's wrong with this project? What's wrong with the original design? 
the new builders answer arrogantly that the man with the original design uh, who laid the foundation, Wright says, had some funny ideas. He really didn't have permission to make that design. He got a bit muddled. We're from the real authorities, and this is how it's going to be. Uh, hypothetical, some historical uh, realities, but the idea of uh, Bright uses this scenario to imagine what Paul is doing. Paul is in the area of Galatia. He's come in, he's laid a foundation where salvation is not one for the Jew and one for the Gentile, but the foundation is one in Christ. The same way, by faith alone in Christ alone, is salvation. And Paul goes away, and some new folks come in, different builders. And what do they do? They question Paul's authority. Question. That's what Ryan talked about last week. The apostleship. They have questioned. They tried to undercut. Paul uh, uh, is, is not doesn't have any real authority. He's an outsider. His ideas are muddled. We're going to design it this way. There's, there is uh, Gentiles to be fully included. They actually have to become Jewish by custom, by circumcision, by Jewish law, and so forth. Paul's authority. His challenge, his message is altered. Um, this is the scenario. This is a pretty good example of what's happening here in Galatia. So let's look at it. We're going to look at the different groups here. Let's look at it um, more specifically what's going on. I think we have some slides, a couple here. Um, here we go. Um, first, we're going to see the unfaithfulness of the Galatians. Verse 6. Paul says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting who have called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Astonished how quickly. It hasn't been long since Paul was there on his missionary journey and they embraced the gospel. And now a short time away, Paul's left and he's heard word that they are turning, they are deserting the gospel, turning to a different one. He says in verse 7, not that there is a different one. It's actually not just information they're turning from. Some information in the gospel that says what? You're deserting him who calls you. You're deserting the Lord. You're turning from the Lord. That's what that word deserting mean here. It means to transfer one's allegiance from one person to another. So Paul has left them with the gospel, faith alone, Christ alone, only one way for salvation. Paul leaves, and they're now leaving and deserting Christ, the one who called them, turning from the Lord, changing their allegiance. It's the idea of soldiers in battle who would be traitors. They would be on one team, maybe a Benedict Arnold, you know, fighting for the colonies and turning fighting for the British. They leave sides here. Paul says that's what's happening. Why are you so quickly turning your allegiance from one master to another to betray, to be a traitor, treason? Um, some of you remember that uh, classic movie Braveheart. You've seen that, right? Um, there's the scene that uh, William Wallace, he's the, he's the, uh, the local uh, leader that, that arouses the Scots, uh, you know, the, 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 the clans together to fight against the powerful English, the British army. And there's just one battle scene where William Wallace is fighting and the battle's going on and then some of the key English
foolish uh, leaders, they ride off. And Wallace says, no, sir. So he goes after them, right? He leaves the main fighting, and he, he gallops towards them, and he, these 10 or so horses are ahead of him, and he catch, catches up, and the, the last horseman turns. And so it's now one-on-one. You remember the scene? And so Wallace is there with his sword, and, and then the Englishman uh, there, uh, the soldier's there, and he's got a, a full helmet and a, a lance, a long, a long stick that he uses, and they, they ride towards one another, and the soldier hits Wallace and knocks him on the ground and injures him. He's heard the, the horseman, the soldier circles around Wallace on the ground. Wallace is injured but not dead. He reaches up and grabs the man and the soldier and pulls him off the horse. He rips off his helmet and takes a knife to his throat. Remember this? Then to cut his throat and what does he do? He just stops. He sees the face. He looks into the eyes of the man who's Knife is at his throat. He realizes it's his, it's his friend. It's his uh, fellow Scotsman, Robert the Bruce, who would later become the King of Scotland. Uh, an ally in the fight against the British, but he had uh, betrayed. He had deserted. He cowered to the cause. And the, the scene is so powerful because in that moment, Wallace. Uh, his whole body kind of goes numb, and you know, his, his eyes. If you had betrayal, you, you hear news or something, someone you trusted was turned on you, it, it, it just disembodies. He doesn't, he kind of staggers, and he just kind of goes numb. And he, he just falls down, basically, gives up to be killed. Um, betrayal. His heart sinks. It's, it, it's Physical pain is one thing, but the emotional pain of, of betrayal. And, and Paul is going to speak so harshly and is so astonished because we've deserted. We've turned the legions from the one who saved and called by the grace of God, who rescued and now falls away. And we've turned to another. And he can't believe it. It evokes emotion and pain. And he speaks out of it. Um, the, the language of deserting him in a different gospel, it shows that this is not like all, it's not some penny issue. It's not like a church squabble, right? And you've turned because of some small issue you know. You're leaving the very core of what it means to know God. Not a minor point of theology. So Paul's passionate. Uh, the Galatians are being... Uh, Tempted to desert, to turn away from the gospel. Where's your heart with the gospel? Um, are you, how's your heart towards the one who called you? Um, it starts when it gets, it gets cold. Um, the gospel sort of slips off our heart. That's why we gather, that's why we meet, because we have to reapply it. But our hearts get and we kind of come to church. Um, what happens over time, we can easily desert him who calls. That's what happened in Galatia. First, the second point, uh, they, weren't, uh, they weren't just called, though they were being led astray, the distortion of the false teachers, verse 7. He says, there's a, turning to a different gospel, not that there's another one, but there are some who trouble you and want you to dis and want to distort the gospel of Christ. 
This turning has resulted from some who trouble, distort. Um, our own hearts tend to go wayward, but then there are people that actually allure us and, and, and entice us to a different way of life that will offer hope and life and meaning. And that's what's happening here in Galatia. Right's illustration, there's the new builders that have come in with a new design. Contrary to the plan, they've offered a, a, a gospel that's a little different. Causing problems. If you have a, I guess we've all probably had a top-loading washing machine, or if you've ever had one or have one, and, and a top-loading washing machine, you have this big piece that sits up in the middle, right? You know, it's called an agitator. And, it, and, and you, you, you put the clothes in there, and the water's in there, and you put the detergent there, and it turns, it agitates, it stirs around the, the water and the soap and the clothes so that it gets clean, right? It moves around, so it's, it mixes things together, and that's the language used here, that's the word. There are agitators that have come in, other believers that are agitators, that are mixing things up, they're stirring the pot, that's good for laundry, not good for the gospel. They've taken some truth and lie, and they mixed it, and they muddled it, and now the Galatians are confused, and some of them are deserting. The one who's called them brought disorder, confusion. These folks are agitators, or some translations say troublemakers. He further, he says, they, uh, they want to distort the gospel. Notice not to give, do away with it. That's too easy. Things distorted. I don't know if you see today like false teaching and uh, people that have left. Most of them don't just call turkey the faith, right? The faith gets shifted. It gets distorted. That which was centered, namely Christ and the gospel, gets moved to the periphery, and things on the periphery or outside further become central. That's distortion. Um, it's like all those social media filters, you know, that change your facial features or skin tone and give you little cat ears or whatever you do. I don't know. Or you see the, uh, if you've been to, like the fairgrounds, they have those, they call them distortion mirrors or carnival mirrors where you stand in front of it like your torso is long and you have little legs and little pea head or, or your head's like massive, like Lucy on a uh, singing and a lip sync, that's all that. Big lips, right? Faith. It gets certain features, uh, caricature get distorted, right? That changed altogether, but it's not true to reality. It's misproportioned. I like it when it makes me you know, thinner. But it's distorted. That's what he's saying here. The false teachers are distorting it. They're misrepresenting it. It's not true to what Jesus has done. It's not true to the grace of God. It's changing the message. The false teachers are so dangerous. John Stott say this, the church's greatest troublemakers now as then are not those outside who oppose, ridicule, and persecute, but those inside who try to change or distort the message. And it's true, right? I mean, it's not what we expect those that don't believe, they're outside to, to ridicule, to oppose, the scripture teaches about persecution. That's expected. That's kind of like we know the, the playing field. We never get that. But it's trouble when it comes from them. Comes within the church. Well, that's not quite true. Let's change it. Let's shift it. Let's move it from the inside out. Brings damage, and that's what's happened here. While Paul's away, 
some brothers, some folks, Jewish Christians from Jerusalem have come to Galatia, and they've said, look, this thing about grace, about wherever you are, just Jesus, that's fine. But you also uh, have to, to be fully heirs of Abraham, you have to, uh, to adopt the Jewish customs. You have to be circumcised. You have to adopt the, the Jewish law, the Torah. You have to keep the food laws Sabbath day. You have to do the things that a Jew would do to be fully included in the gospel. It's a gospel plus something. These things are earning some level of righteous status before God. This idea of grace alone, no matter where you are, by faith in Christ, that's a little too simple. And so they come in. They call Judaizers to change the gospel. The greatest danger is not the anti-gospel outside the church is the counterfeit gospel inside the church. And that's why you see so many books in the New Testament. You've got Jude, you've got 2 Timothy, you've got 1 John, you've got 2 Peter. All of these books will repeat issues of false teaching. And if you're aware of the, uh, you know, the teaching out there, uh, internet, you can find anything, any teaching. There's so much of this going on, and it impacts us at such different levels. So before we move on to the final point, which is going to be the shortest point, I want to talk briefly uh, about just what are some false gospels today. So I'm trying to think about this week. Like, okay, some of us are tempted to say, if I do certain works, if I do certain good things, I come to church, if I give money, if I'm a good person, uh, you know, I gain some kind of status with God. Maybe we think that. We probably do. Maybe more subconsciously than consciously. It's true. It's, that's a works righteousness. That's a Jesus plus something. But what are some others? What are some things we think about? What are some ways we take uh, Jesus as sinner, the death, burial, resurrection of Christ, and move it to the outer circle? We put something else in the inner circle. Ray, Ray Ortland gives some ideas, some add-ons. What can become the markers of our truth? What becomes central to us? He gives some things. Listen to these. These are things that many of us probably believe in. He says, things become central. A passionate devotion for the pro-life cause. A focus on modern managerial techniques in the church. Right? We need some more management in our church. That's a good thing. A drive towards church growth or personal growth. A deep concern for the institution of the family. That's, that's important. Another false gospel. A clever appeal to consumerism. Offering a sort of cost-free Christianity. Being like a prosperity gospel, right? Come to Jesus, you get health, wealth, you get it all. Jesus makes your life happen. Listen to this one. This is, may, may apply to some of our church. A sympathetic, empathetic, thickly honeyed cultivation of interpersonal relationships. You know, we're the people that do relationships well. We love people. We can navigate difficult things. We're wise. Uh, can become central. The determination to take America back to its Christian roots through political power. What we see there, right? A warm affirmation of self-esteem. We could add, you know, evangelism is the litmus test for real faith. Some churches have that. Or certain music styles. Or um, being relevant. Or uh, a church that's woke, right? In some capacity. Um, most of the things I listed are things we care about and are good things. Would we agree? Maybe? Some of them? Um, but they're not central to the gospel message. They can't replace the gospel. They can't be the litmus test for what the gospel is. 
Because there are people and groups that care about those things, right? But miss the power of Christ, the Spirit living with us, the gospel offers, that now empowers us to do many of the things that we see. Pro-life. Amen. Amen. Church growth, right? Family values. Yes, we can say these things. But those are not the gospel. Cannot take center stage. They cannot sustain us. And I hear some of you critics uh, saying, yeah, but what about the church? The church just talks about stuff. We never do anything, right? And if you're under 30, uh, the, the statistics say church, uh, church folks under 30, constant complaint, right? The church talks, but they don't do. They don't act. We need to be active. Anybody want to raise your hand? I'll raise my hand. I'll accept it. It's true. It's true. There's activism needed. And yet, cannot replace the gospel message, the proclamation of Christ. Some of our circles, uh, some our circles, uh, it's about knowledge. It's the gospel plus having lots of information where brains don't stick. The real litmus test, yeah, that's Jesus, yeah, that's what he's done, but how much theology do we know? It's a gospel plus. We can turn to Pharisees. Start with the gospel. There's one other gospel, uh, counterfeit gospel, that I'm going to name and talk about before we get to the final piece. Um, and I, I think this is so prevalent in our culture and so prevalent in the church that, that we don't even know it. Like it's like air we breathe. Um, it's the gospel of self fulfillment. You know that? Or we could say that the gospel of uh, expressive individualism. Um, it's Jesus, what he's done, plus my own happiness, right? I mean, that is like, in fact, some of us are like, yeah, that's okay, what's wrong with that? That's totally but If you ask most parents, like, uh, what do you want your kid to be? I don't really care what my kid does growing up. I just want them to be happy, right? And that's like, how many, how many of your parents have said that? Like, we, we say that, we talk that way. Um, so much the landscape of our world. It sounds something like, yeah, I know I probably shouldn't do that. I know Scripture says we shouldn't do that. But I know God wants me to be happy. Or God would not want me to be unhappy, so this must be okay. It becomes the trump, trump card to endorse pretty much whatever we want. Because if we're not happy, then it can't be right. Sometimes... Uh, Without seeking counsel, without seeking the word, we say, you know, I prayed about it, and uh, I feel like this is what God wants me to do. Well, maybe. Maybe. How could a loving God not want this or want that? Um, but I, I, think, I think this is the most problem. Um, and it's, it's best, it's half-truth. Um, at its worst, it's a blatant lie and deceptive. We begin to speculate on what God wants for us, and we use that speculation to counter, to go against what often the Bible clearly says. Because uh, self-fulfillment is the American way. What does God want? Listen to this, 1 Thessalonians 4.3. I don't know what God wants. I'm not sure. We do know this. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. Um, if, if, if happiness is the primary thing God wants for us now, 
He is not in a big hurry. <laughs> like, we should be frustrated. Because he's not in a rush to get there. Takes a long time. In fact, some of us experience suffering. We talked about a class on race earlier. But we have so much to learn from African American brothers and sisters throughout the generation, particularly those enslaved and struggle. We have so many, uh, we have so many uh, examples. We have Negro spirituals. People suffer their whole life. No happiness. Zero. Well, if that's what God wanted, they didn't get it. If God failed them, they misguided, we dismiss it. The church across the world suffers. It can't be self-fulfillment. It can't be happiness. It can't be. Yes, we can argue in the end, ultimate happiness and joy. Amen. That's true. That's what the songs were about. They, they sang about the next life, not this life, because it wasn't happy. God's will of God is to be set apart, sanctification. To grow in grace and holiness. The verse goes on to talk about sexual holiness. So there's that aspect. And it goes on to talk about holiness and relationships. God wants us to grow. Be set apart in how we do life in relationship with one another. If it's not growth in Christ and be set apart, we have nothing to do with trials. We can't answer. If happiness is the goal, we can't answer suffering. We can't answer trials. We can't answer Jesus says... Not make yourself happy, but says what? Deny yourself. Take up your cross. Deny. You have to deny a person. To follow Jesus, you have to deny a person. That person's us. <laughs> yes, to follow Jesus is to bring some happiness and joy. Of course. Of course. But it cannot be ultimate. It cannot be. What do you do with sacrifice? What do you do with trial? What do you do with struggle? God has bigger things. May we know the lie and deceptive nature of that. I think that is a false teaching today. I think it's something that we're all uh, tempted with. We're lured with. We use it to justify so many of our actions. Certainly God will be happy. Maybe. He wants you to be like Him. He wants you to grow. He wants you to see His Son as more beautiful and worthy and glorious to such a level that you actually become like And becoming like him will find happiness. Can you pinpoint uh, where you're tempted? If you said, my gospel is Jesus plus, what is it for you? Material blessing? Um, your image? Right? Whatever it is. Your academic achievement? works righteousness. The Galatians were being allured. One final thought, we'll turn to the last one. The most dangerous teachers are the ones who preach a different Christ but still call him Jesus. John Stop. They preach a different Christ but they use the same name. It's confusing. It's tricky. Finally, we have the uh, unfaithfulness of the Galatians, the distortion of the false teachers. Finally, we have the reaction of Paul. This will be clear. Uh, my, my application is that Paul's reaction should be our reaction. The first thing is Paul's astonished. We've already said that. He'd gone on a missionary journey in, in the Galatia. Uh, Philip Ryken says this briefly. This is found in, in Acts 14. In Galatia's a region. So there's, there's a bunch of areas. He says this. Here's the press clippings from Paul's missionary journey to Galatia. Proceeding Antioch, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism, Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas. When the Gentiles heard this, they began to rejoice and glorify the word of the Lord. And the word of the Lord was spread throughout the whole region. 
And in Iconium, another area in Galatia, Paul and Barnabas spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. In Lystra, Paul and Barnabas, they were welcomed and worshipped like gods. In Derby, another area, they, they had preached the gospel to the city and had made many disciples. Short mission trip. You know, you ever done a short-term mission trip? People believed. Miracles were done. Churches were planted. All the success stories. And now they've deserted. And Paul is astonished. So much so that he thinks they're under a curse. Galatians 3.1 Oh foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. The devil's got a hold of you, he says. So many good things. Astonished. Second thing, um, anger. Indignation, verses 8 and 9. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you have received, let him be accursed. Paul says it twice to show you. He's, he's angry, but he's not like flop the handle like, you know, uh, abusive father kind of angry. He's so angry. He says it. He says, just to be clear, let him be accursed. I'm going to say it again. To preach a false gospel, to distort, to manipulate, to pull away, they should be accursed. Anathema is the term. The Greek term, anathema, to be cursed, to be damned. But he includes himself. If somehow I go out of my mind and I start adding to this message, may I be accursed. May I be cut off. It's interesting that it includes angels. Do you know how many cults and religions have come from angels? Right? Islam, prominent one, right? Muhammad receives a vision from an angel. Uh, Joseph Smith, Mormonism. Right? Angel Moroni comes, gives him vision. New religion, new cult. Those are just two big ones. There are numerous ones about angels. He says, if an angel comes, and he's going to counter the gospel of grace alone and Christ alone. And he's going to say, yeah, but you also got to have the second book. It's the revelation of, uh, you know, God this directly. Or, you know what, you really need to practice this certain thing. You're going to need to read this certain text. You're going to need to dress in this certain way. You're going to need the ladies to need to be down to the ankles and wear your little hair thingies. I don't know. Sounds like Paul. 
was just quickly. He deserted so fast. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it. And they said, these are our gods. It's a different gospel. And the gospel of grace, you know, they had it. And then he goes on to verse 10. Same response Paul has. Now therefore, this is the Lord. Let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. Similar, right? So quickly, the Lord is astonished. They're worshiping another God, contrary gospel, and the response is, is this anger. What's the anger about? What should our anger be about? What's Paul angry about? It's about the glory of God. Before it's horizontal, it's vertical. The glory that is deserved of God, the one we worship, the one that do praise, the one that rescued us, the one that saved us, the one that changed us. We're not taking the glory, we're offering it to something else. We're offering to Jesus plus whatever that thing is. We're bowing down. You ever seen a, into a Buddhist temple? You see a statue of stone and people literally kneeling before it. Have you seen anybody seen this one? You might have been to Thailand or Southeast Asia. Like it's a statue that's like, oh, let's pick back up. Let's make sure it's, and they bow down as if that statue is your thought. That's what's happening. That's what we do. The counter. Contrary to God's Angry about God's glory. Salvation belongs to the Lord. But also, deceiving people. Jesus is very serious about us, those that deceive people from the gospel. This is not child's blood. This is salvation, eternal life. You, you, you put your hope in the plus, the other things, you lose life, eternal life. You lose Jesus. You lose salvation. This is not a game. We should not be hypercritical. We should not be constantly looking for false teachers everywhere, and disputing and getting in arguments. We should be very aware. We should be very attuned to things that allure our hearts false. It's worth getting upset about. What upsets you? Does that upset you? Think about the things I get upset about, right? I'm upset someone cuts me off in traffic. You know? I'm upset that that video takes like 10 seconds to download. I'm like, oh my gosh. My wife thought he was terrible. Right? And what are we upset about? Are we upset about God's glory? We're not aware of false gospels anymore. Are we upset that people we know are reading books and being persuaded to other gospels? I don't know about the Jesus thing. You know, it's probably... I have a lot of options. Are we grieved? Are we angered in the sense of God's glory? Are we moved? Are we stirred? That needs to be our response. What if we were? We'll look at verse 10 next week. What if we were? What if that upset us? What kind of neighbor can we work with? If we, like, we really cared about that. If we cared about our neighbors that don't know the Lord, it, it, it troubles. Like, we couldn't sleep at night because we just, they're on my mind. Hey, Hannah, you're asleep, baby. Can we pray for, for her? Like, I'm just, like, I see, I just, there's so much life that you think have. Or maybe they're here and they, the church has got a lot of baggage and, and now they're off and they're gone. Like, oh, let's pray. Let's, let's, let's go to rescue missions. Let's, let's tell them. There's one gospel. There's one hope. You can search and search. You're not going to find it. Let's uh, start with us, right? Let's not desert. Let's hold fast. 
The good news is he helped us. We'll see that now on the supper. He holds us, but uh, let's not desert the one who called us. Let's name the false gospel.